today on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. Talking about what has happened uh, yesterday in the U.S., uh, Trump's former campaign manager, Paul Manafort, found guilty on eight counts. His former lawyer, Michael Cohen, uh, pleading guilty. Here's what the president had to say. It doesn't involve me, but I still feel, uh, you know, it's a very sad thing that happens. This has nothing to do with Russian collusion. This started as Russian collusion. This has absolutely nothing to do. This is a witch hunt, and it's a disgrace. This has nothing to do with what they started out looking for Russians involved in our campaign. There were none. All right, let's bring in Claire Finkelstein uh, as well. Uh, she is a professor of law, philosophy, University of Pennsylvania Law School, and is with us now. Claire, thank you so much for taking the time. We appreciate this. Of course. Uh, it's, it, it amazes me that no one seems to say the word collusion more than Donald Trump does. <laughs> it's true. But as he's also quick to point out, collusion is not a legal concept. The legal concept here is conspiracy. And yesterday we got a guilty plea from his personal lawyer that he had been directed by the president to pay off Stormy Daniels in violation of campaign finance laws. That is conspiracy with a big C. All right. We've certainly, uh, over the, the months and, and, and year and so that he's been in office, we, we've shaken our head on what's happened. This would take down more people than, than we can shake a stick at. Nothing seems to stick to Teflon Don. Will it this time? What does this mean for Donald Trump? Well, this is very different from what we've had before, and I think it will have very important implications for him. Uh, what we learned yesterday from Michael Cohen is that the president is what we call an unindicted co-conspirator, so that he is not named as guilty of a crime or as indicted of a crime, but he is implicated by Michael Cohen's guilty plea as having conspired with Cohen to violate federal law. That's the first time we've had anything of that nature, and that is a game changer. So what happens now in regard to the president? How will this make his life difficult? Well, the first thing is that Lanny Davis was on MSNBC last night, and Lanny Davis is Michael Cohen's lawyer, saying that his client intends to fully cooperate with federal prosecutors, that he knows an awful lot, not just about payments to these women, but that he also knows about the president's involvement with Russia and then candidate Trump's involved, possible involvement with the meeting in Trump Tower in 2016. He is prepared, Davis says, to implicate the president on a variety of matters relating to Russia once there is an agreement in place. So far, we have a plea deal, but we don't have a cooperation agreement in place. But I'm sure that will come uh, likely in the next few days. All right. Obviously, you sort of answered my next question was, why has that not happened? What will this agreement be like? What is Cohen looking for from this? Well, I expect that the agreement will have to do with the sentence that Cohen will receive. Right. So he has yet to be sentenced, obviously. He's pled guilty, but the sentencing would normally be down the road. And there'll be a lot of negotiating around that sentence. So the question is, how many years in prison is he going to serve? Could he 
if he cooperates enough and the information is useful enough, could he get out of a prison term entirely? I sort of doubt that, but he could have what would ordinarily be a term of, you know, eight, nine, ten years uh, reduced very significantly, uh, possibly to a matter of months, if the information he has is useful enough and he's willing to testify to it. Why would he uh, not get to the point sooner? Is he obviously holding out for a better deal, uh, you know, waiting to let this information trickle down, depending upon how, how tight of a squeeze he is in? Well, it's a give and take. So prosecutors have to understand what information he has. And then they have to assess how useful it is to them, depending on the corroborating evidence that they have. Because on the face of it, he Cohen doesn't have a good track record as far as telling the truth. That's my next so, question. What about his credibility? Yeah. I mean, Trump is already saying this guy's going to say anything just to stay out of jail. Does he have a point? Well, he does, except that he was willing to take a guilty plea without a specific deal in place. And that's really very significant. Um, and his lawyer on television said last night, you know, I'm not politically aligned with the president uh, or with Cohen, and I would not have taken this if my client were not willing to fully come clean. So Cohen is coming across as a fairly credible um, individual at this point and a fairly credible witness, but prosecutors, in order to really have something there, will want corroborating evidence. Now, one very significant thing is that it looks like Cohen has tapes. And that was confirmed uh, by the prosecution yesterday in court, uh, we understand, uh, as well as by defense counsel. So there should be some hard and fast evidence to back up his claims. So is there, what are the chances of this being anything more than an embarrassment for the president? I mean, even with the, with, with the charges in regard to the Stormy Daniels and, and the Playboy and the Playboy model and the hush money, I mean, does his base care about that? I don't know about his base, but members of Congress may start to really care. Because once you're moving from simply, you know, an unpleasant person, bravado, sex scandals, to actual crimes mm-hmm. that the president has been implicated in, and, and this is a serious crime. He's implicated in having directed Michael Cohen to make payments that violate campaign finance laws. Uh, and if that is believed, then uh, the House and the Senate will be in a difficult position, and you may start to find Republicans defecting from him. How do what is next? What happens now? Uh, a reporter in Washington says that it's relatively quiet. There's a lot of behind uh, closed door meetings going on right now. How does this unfold? What happens now? Well, the first thing that'll happen is this cooperation agreement with Michael Cohen will be put in place. And at that point, he will start to reveal to federal prosecutors what he knows specifically about Russia. And so they will start to see how strong a hand they have on the president. Remember that Mueller has said, has told the president's legal team that he will not try to indict a sitting president, but that he will put information relevant to potential crimes in a report that will go to Congress. So this will all feed into Mueller's report. It will be sent to Congress, and then Congress will have to decide whether or not to impeach the president. 
that's on one side. On the other side, there's the Manafort piece. Now, if Manafort decides to flip and to testify against the president, then it seems to me almost a foregone conclusion that the president will be uh, impeached, if not potentially indicted, though I think that's very unlikely at this point, and I think Mueller will stick to his uh, statement on that. But I think it becomes very likely because the pressure then is really reinforced from both sides. And uh, he will have a very difficult time dispelling the claims about Russian collusion at that point. What are the chances of Manafort flipping? Trump's alluding to that today uh, in his tweets in the sense saying that, you know, uh, obviously Cohen did, Manafort didn't. Uh, What are the chances that Manafort will? That's the... $24,000 $24,000 question or $64,000 sure. question. Uh, that is really the essential question because the pressure is mounting on Manafort, obviously. The government may decide to retry him on the 10 counts where there was a hung jury, and he faces another trial in hmm. D.C. in which his role as uh, advisor to a foreign government is directly in place. So we come much closer to the president in the second trial. Uh, I think eventually it is likely that he will. Now, the president, in sending that tweet this morning, may have been trying to signal to Manafort that he intends to pardon him. The president's in a real bind with that, however, because if he does try to pardon Manafort, especially as his proceedings are ongoing, that could very well be obstruction of justice. Hmm. more so than anything that's occurred so far, uh, because it would really be interfering with an ongoing uh, judicial proceeding. So I think that this is really becoming problematic for the president and that he's in an extremely tight spot at this point. Uh, The only sitting president, I understand, to not uh, release his tax returns, uh, those, uh, I I guess, uh, still a mystery. What are the chances that this has more to do with Donald Trump's personal business dealings and and, and, and whatever has gone on with Russia than it does to do with, with the politics of the United States. Is this, is this more a personal thing, do you think, for Donald than it is uh, something to do with politics? Well, it becomes very complicated because at this point there are layers upon layers of potential criminal uh, activity that the president could be accused of. He might, it might have started as being about his private business deals, Uh, and also his bid to become president. But now he really has to face the issue of obstruction of justice charges. And, uh, of course, remember, that was the point on which President Nixon was uh, first Hmm. impeached. So uh, when there is an attempt to cover up past crimes, it's very often the cover-up that is the thing that brings Uh, someone down. In this case, of course, the president tried to cover up not only his involvement with Russia, as we're starting to learn more and more, but he tried to cover up the payment to Stormy Daniels and tried to cover up that that was about trying to improve his election chances. That itself becomes a problem. So he's starting to get such a mountain of legal difficulties that he could potentially face uh, that it may just be insurmountable. Washington's reaction to all of this, uh, what is going on behind closed doors now? 
We don't know. It has been awfully quiet. Uh, there's a kind of deafening silence from Republicans, so it's worth pointing out that there was other news yesterday, which is that two Republican congressmen have now been indicted on wholly unrelated charges relating to their personal finances. Uh, so Republicans are surely uh, not feeling in a very good position this morning. Um, the you know drumbeat for impeachment among Democrats may start to have more traction at this point. But so far, everyone is quiet and sort of waiting to see, I think, what happens uh, with these two cases and where it goes. Will we know more about the Cohen case and if he decides to talk uh, even more? Will we know that sooner rather than later? I would expect so, because he's due to be sentenced soon. And so the deal, the cooperation agreement, will have to be hammered out almost immediately. So that's what I expect to happen soonest. We also should learn relatively quickly whether or not um, prosecutors are going to seek to retrial, retry Paul Manafort on the 10 counts where there was a hung jury. That may be part of the negotiations with Manafort, however. I expect we will need to know that before before his D.C. trial starts. Hmm. How will this affect the midterms? As we've all been talking about forever, it seems, uh, the storyline's constantly changing. Your view heading in to those? My view is that this will have an impact on the midterms. Uh, I think that Republicans will start to look much less appealing. Uh, it is amazing how little their support has ebbed in the face of these uh, scandals and the information that's come dribbling out. And that may be a matter of sort of boiling the frog slowly, as we've talked about mm. before, that when the information comes out so slowly, the public becomes sort of inured to the scandal aspect of it. But yesterday was really big news. And I think it, especially the guilty plea to hear a member of Trump's inner circle plead guilty and really evince the desire to come clean and to bring the president down with him as he goes. We've certainly seen how Donald Trump reacts when uh, the heat is turned up. Are you surprised we haven't heard more from him today? I'm not, because we know on the Stormy Daniels matter, he's been at his quietest. And we've had the impression that he's been more afraid of that front than anything to do with Russia. Hmm. So this hits really... Uh, at the heart of things, we have that tape with him on Air Force One saying over and over again that he knew nothing about the payment to Stormy Daniels. And you can bet that's going to be played alongside uh, the reminder to the public about this guilty plea for a while. So I think that the president knows that he's in a very tight spot with regard to the Stormy Daniels payment. Uh, at a rally last night, didn't seem to phase him, didn't seem to talk about it. Uh, will this just, and we, we, I mentioned this before, will this just push his base farther into his arms? I doubt that at this point. Again, the, the one thing to dismiss uh, a verdict against Manafort, where all they have is sort of the black box of the jury and no explanation, but when you have Michael Cohen standing up there and saying, yes, I committed crimes and I committed those crimes at the behest of the president, 
And believe you me, I have tapes to back it up. That is uh, going to be very difficult for the public to overlook. I see what you're saying, Claire, but but I, I'm not sure they're well versed enough to 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 differentiate differentiate between uh, what the law says and how they feel. Uh, in other words, for them, this is well. He's trying to cover up uh, an affair he had with somebody because of his marriage. That's personal. It's just like the Bill Clinton affair. Americans don't care about that. We 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 don't. If that's what's bringing him down, that that, that we don't care. It's not just the affair, though. Remember, there's a campaign finance violation yeah. here. Do you think that and resonates with Americans, though? Unvarnished. It may, because one of the things that Cohen said is, I did this for the express purpose of helping the candidate, Donald Trump, win the election. So I paid off... <laughs> someone who had something bad to say about the president in order to keep information from the American public. I think that's got to start resonating. We've certainly seen how this uh, president reacts when the heat is turned up. What do you anticipate in the next few weeks as the rope does get tighter? The real question in my mind is whether or not he's going to try to pardon Manafort. And in a way, that's what I'm most worried about, because that'll bring our constitutional system really to the edge uh, of territory that we've never gone to before. Can the president pardon his way out of this? It's clear, of course, he's not going to pardon Cohen because the two men are now enemies and Cohen has given up on that possibility. But can it be that Manafort is so far not cooperating because he's hoping on a pardon from the president. When and would the I president do that, that Claire? That will, yeah. When would the president well, do that? Do it any, he could do it any time. Now, I don't share the view of some commentators that it would be legal for him to do it any time, but he believes he has the power to do it at any point. He believes he can issue preemptive pardons. Uh, he believes that he can do it after the fact, that there's no timeline, and there are plenty of legal scholars who would back him up on that, even those who don't necessarily support him. Uh, I don't see the pardon power as a blank check, uh, but legal opinion is admittedly uh, divided on this point. Where do you see this discussion one week from now? I think that the agreement, the cooperation agreement with Cohen will probably be in place by then. And that information about what Cohen knows about, say, the Trump Tower meeting, was Donald Trump present at that meeting? Uh, Did he at least know about it? Do we have proof that he knew about it and so on? I think that will start to come out. Mm. And that will also be a very uh, deep difficulty for the president and another possible major turning point. There's also Michael Flynn. In the picture, Uh, we know that his sentencing has been put off. Why? Is he renegotiating with uh, prosecutors? Are they hoping to get more information out of him? Are they hoping to get him to testify? Uh, What exactly is going on with Flynn? But it does look as though uh, prosecutors are sort of closing in on all sides. Claire Finkelstein has been with us, professor of law and philosophy, University of Pennsylvania Law School. Claire, fascinating times. Thank you so much for the insight. Much appreciated. Anytime. Thanks for having me. 
You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. Toronto City Council, there's been lots of chatter in regard to Premier Doug Ford reducing the size of uh, Toronto City Council. Uh, had to clarify that he didn't plan on doing that on any other councils uh, across Ontario. And of course, this has been a very contentious issue, very divisive issue uh, in southern Ontario as uh, this government takes power. Uh, however, there are lots of people who support a smaller council, including Christine Van Guyen, Ontario Director of the Canadian Taxpayers Federation, and is with us now. Christine, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Yeah, thanks for having me. So is what the Premier has done, is that an efficiency or is it a loss of democracy? Uh, well, in our view, it is actually more democratic to ensure that the wards are in a more equal size. So with the current 47 planned wards, there would be a big uh, difference between the smallest ward, which I think would have as few as 28,000 or so people in it, and the largest ward, which would have uh, something like 70,000. So um, that really gives a disproportionate voice to people in, in the small ward um, and a smaller voice to the people in, in the larger ward. And with the 25-ward plan, the 25 wards would mirror the federal and provincial boundaries. Um, it would give people a, a better sense of which which area they lived in because they already are familiar with those other wards. A lot of people don't even know what ward they live in right now or who their city councillor is. So um, in our view, it, it is uh, it's something that could improve democracy by um, giving people more and better information and by making City Hall more efficient. And it has the added bonus that it will save taxpayers $25 million to start. Do you agree there is, mo- there is money to be saved here? Yeah, of, of course. Um, with, with fewer city councillors, you have a, a smaller budget for staff and offices and all of that. But... Uh, that's that's how they, the 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 premier estimated the twenty five and a half million dollars in savings. In my view, the savings would actually be a lot greater because with more city councillors comes more horse trading, more pork barreling, more politicians with their own pet projects to give themselves a legacy. Um, and if you have fewer people doing that, uh, you will inevitably save money. And I think that's a good thing uh, for the people of Toronto. Are you surprised Doug Ford went in this direction? Uh, well, I think it certainly shouldn't come to a surprise to people. Um, this is a premier who was involved in municipal politics before he in, in Toronto before he became premier. Um, his brother had supported a similar plan to reduce the wards to 25 um, when his brother was mayor. So anyone who knows anything about the Fords knows they would support something like this. He certainly didn't campaign explicitly on this plan, but uh, it, it shouldn't come as a shock to anyone. I think the, the thing that surprised people was, was the timing of it, maybe. But even with respect to the timing, when is he supposed to do it? He, he did it pretty quickly after becoming elected premier, and it's better to do it now than to allow the words to expand to 47 and then claw that back after four years when we're about to head into an election or or when he would have to have a new mandate for an election uh, as premier anyway. So um, I think I don't have a problem with the timing. Uh, overstepping his boundary, should he be sticking his nose in municipal politics? Well, constitutionally speaking, um, the, the municipalities are creatures of the province. They don't have their own um, separation of powers the way the provinces and the federal governments do. So it's, it's up to the provinces to decide something like this. 
Um, if we want to change how our constitution works, I guess uh, to give special powers to municipalities, we can we can do that. But um, right now, as things work, the municipalities are governed by the province, and it's within um, the province's rights to to make these changes. Why Toronto and not other cities? Many have said he's got an, uh, you know, a grudge to grind with, with Toronto. Um, I think that there, there's there been a lot of speculation <laughs> about that. Um, he is also making changes to uh, some of the regional boards that uh, that were just in this past year, or for the first time, going to have elected chairs to regional boards. Um, that's that's sort of a different a different question about if that should be done or not. I think it's better to to have everyone on the regional boards sort of doing the same thing, not have some that are elected, some that are appointed. Um, but I, I think his plan is to take a pause and see if we can change how the currently elected boards or uh, for regional boards are, are governed. With respect to why Toronto and not why other municipalities, was that Toronto is the biggest city in Ontario and Toronto has a huge number of city councillors and Toronto is particularly dysfunctional. You'll have city council meetings that last for five days straight. You have city councillors who will vote at 11 p.m. on multi-million dollar contracts. Meanwhile, during the day, they spent hours debating the placement of a, a street light or a parking pad. So uh, things like that are, are just totally, totally dysfunctional. It's a very dysfunctional council. And I think Mr. Ford, when he was part of that council, was particularly bothered by it. So I think grudge or no grudge, it's something that he has deep, deeper insight into than he would have into other municipalities. What about citizens' reaction to this? How do you think this is going to play? So CTV just did a poll on this, and what they found, there, there's been mixed reaction from, from different polls, but the, the CTV poll that came out a few days ago found that 48% of people polled in Toronto are actually in favour of the um, of the Ford move to reduce the city council. Now, that's, that's not a majority, but there isn't any majority. Um, the, the remaining people, there were, I think, 36 or 38% of people were up- opposed to the Ford plan, but the rest of people just didn't really have an opinion or didn't really know what was going on. So more people are in favor of the um, move to reduce city council than are opposed to it. Uh, obviously, there are a lot of people with vested interests who um, sort of suckle at the teat of Toronto City City Hall and uh, they're in, in up in arms and, and hysterical right now and, and bringing, um, there are three applications to, to stop this this um, this legislation from coming into force. Uh, and Canadian Taxpayers Federation is actually going to be intervening in that litigation um, at a hearing on August 31st. So there's you- a lot of people who have vested interests who are opposed, but amongst voters, um it looks like the plurality of voters are in favor of the move. Where do you, where do you think uh, the legalities will get them? Where, where, where is there a chance here in this for this in court? So the arguments that the people who are fighting this are making are, are on the basis of unwritten constitutional principles, um, saying that a principle democracy um, prevents the government from doing this. Um, we'll be intervening to say that there are, there are other principles of democracy um, that say that 
this is the, the right thing to do, specifically um, the principle of parliamentary supremacy, that the legislature is supreme and they can enact legislation like this. Um, the applicants who are fighting the legislation are also making arguments on uh, freedom of expression, freedom of association and equality. Um, in my view, as a lawyer, I don't see how those charter principles uh, and charter rights apply in this situation. So I'm skeptical that they will be successful. The city of Toronto is also bringing an application challenging the legislation. Um, it was front page news uh, last week that the city's own solicitors said that they had no path forward to, to beat the province in, in litigation, that they would lose. And the city nevertheless voted to proceed in a costly court battle that their own lawyers are telling them they will lose. So um, that's sort of my opinion. Um, I'm excited to be part of the intervention and, and to stand up for taxpayers and say that this is the right thing to do, um, that reducing the size of Toronto City Hall will save us money and it will bring us a more effective government. Does this send a message to other city councils that may be dysfunctional? I think that it's, I think that city councils across the province, like a lot of them have problems. Um, but the problems in Toronto are, are a bit more unique in terms of the, just the size of the plenary, um, debates makes the governing of Toronto uniquely difficult. So, um, I don't know that, that cities across the province need to think, oh, you know, it started with Toronto and now the size of our city council um, going to be reduced. There's no magic number on on what the right size of a city council should be, um, but certainly uh, the experience in Toronto has been that the current 44 wards is too large, and that the 47 is just going to make it worse. So um, I, I I I think cities should always aspire to be more functional and better governed. I don't think that they need to. Uh, have any concerns that the premier is going to make any changes to them next. What do you say to those who say that the premier is using bully tactics here? Um, I don't know what the bully tactics would be other than the rights that he has under the, the constitution in Canada that, that the, the, the cities are creatures of, uh, of, of the province. And if they think that uh, making changes to that is bullying, uh, they should take that up with uh, the founders of our country. All right. Uh, also, you put out a separate paper, six reforms that would improve accountability in Ontario politics. Your your objective behind this and, and uh, your thoughts. Uh, yeah. So I had done a, an article a few months ago, or I, I guess it was a few weeks ago, not even that long ago, on, on reforms that Premier Ford could make to save taxpayers money. Our mandate at Canadian Taxpayers Federation is sort of a dual mandate. We advocate for lower taxes, but we also advocate for greater accountability. So I proposed some changes that the Premier could enact right away to make Ontario's government more accountable to the citizens. And one of the main things that I think um, could really improve accountability is recall and referendum legislation. Um, when Wynne was Premier, she had a low poll numbers in, in the single digits at some point. And when you have a Premier who's that deeply unpopular and is still enacting legislation and is still actually um, making regulatory, the government's making regulatory decisions um, during the writ period, uh, and you have the citizens have no way to retaliate against the government that's doing these things that they are so um, dissatisfied with, 
that's when you need recall legislation. It should be a very high standard to recall a politician. But I think in the in the case of our former premier, I think it might have been successful. We need legislation like that, like they have in British Columbia. So when the premier's down and out and losing and starts throwing Hail Mary passes, this can this can interject. Yeah. And I think that a lot of people would have liked to have the power to do something about that under the last government. Um, I mean, no government, no premier ever wants to write legislation that's essentially a noose to hang him or herself with, mm. which is what recall legislation is. Um, but I think when we're early in the mandate with, with Premier Ford, and he's still popular, um, now is the time to push for legislation like this um, that would really improve accountability and, and, give, and, and it would empower voters and citizens. Uh, that being said, what's the party's responsibility here? I mean, many suggested before the last election that uh, the Kathleen Wynne stepped down uh, and her party decided to stick with her. Uh, does the party not hold responsibility, that responsibility? They they do, but the experience in um, in Canadian political culture is quite different than uh, the experience of other Westminster democracies like uh, England and Australia, where the party has shown themselves to be more willing to uh, to lynch their own their own leader. Um, in Canada, we don't we haven't really had that experience the way we've had it they've had it in england and and in australia where that happens more frequently um it's just a nature of the the political culture here um so we could do two things we could change the political culture we could empower voters to make that decision themselves you talk about enacting honesty in budget legislation boy how do we do that in politics so i think we what we could do is is enact legislation um that would say, you know, there was that big fight with the last government on what accounting standard is the appropriate standard to you. Mm -hmm. I think that if the um, government adopted legislation that said we must use the public, generally accepted public sector accounting standards, and they need to be applied consistently across time and across different um, parts of government, that would bring more consistency and believability to government numbers. I think that the Ford move to do this this line-by-line audit and his special um, committee on um, looking into the past financial practices of the last government, those are important, um, important tools that look backwards. But what we need to do is look forwards and say, you know, uh, let's not just trust whoever the next premier is um, to do the right thing. Uh, let's do something to enact legislation to make sure they do. And and this is forward-looking. It would make sure um, consistent and appropriate accounting standards are used so we don't have that situation again. Uh, will this audit that the Premier is doing now, will that eliminate uh, creative accounting or, or different versions of it? I mean, will there be clarif- clarity after this as to which accounting uh, structure or template we're following? No, so what the audit is doing is it's just looking at how money was spent. It's not proposing any particular accounting standard as far as I know. That was something that the Auditor General had proposed doing. So it's only backwards looking. What we need to do is protect taxpayers going forward from future governments who might try and use kind of um, inappropriate, I wouldn't just use the term creative, I would say inappropriate accounting standards. 
getting back to uh, Toronto City Council and shrinking their uh, city council, where is this going, especially in regard to the fact that there is a municipal election not too far away? Uh, is there good timing on this? So um, what's interesting about the court battle is this, this, uh, the city is challenging the plan reduction to 25 words. But the city's own lawyers have said not only will they lose this case, but they've also said, even if we win and you get somehow the relief that says we're going to go back to the 47 ward plan, even if the city successfully gets that as an order from the court, the city lawyers have said we will not be able to run an election at this point with the 47 ward. So it's bizarre to me that the city of Toronto, the Toronto City Council decided to ignore the advice of their lawyers to challenge something that they, and they know they'll lose, and that even if they win, they won't be able to, to have the outcome that they want. So this just shows how deeply these changes are needed because of how self-interested these city councillors are. Are they ignoring are, their own their own lawyers' advice? Are they? Are any? Do any think this is a good idea? Reduction in the size? Yeah. So there are a number of city councillors who are in favor of the reduced um, the reduced city council size. Um, one of them actually happens to be my own city councillor in Etobicoke. Um, his name's Justin DeChiano, and he. Um, challenged the original um, plan to increase the number of wards from 44 to 47 on the basis that um, there wouldn't be uh, enough similarity in the size of the wards, that the, that my ward in Etobicoke would be underrepresented in city council because there would be so many more people in my ward than in some of the small downtown wards, mm. giving a much bigger voice uh, in city council to the people living in those little tiny wards. Christine Van Gein has been with us, Ontario Director, Canadian Taxpayers Federation, talking about the size of Toronto City Council and, uh, of course, how it may affect others. And at this point, uh, the Premier has said he's not about to touch any other city councils uh, in regard to size. Christine, thanks so much for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Thank you very much for having me on. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. Lots of chatter about reboots. It seems that uh, in the TV world, uh, if we did it 10 or 20 years ago or even 30 years ago, uh, we should be doing it again. Uh, many have said that uh, TV has lost in, in trying to, uh, I guess, capture some of its uh, past glory by, uh, I guess, bringing some of these back. It seems odd that one of the biggest TV stories in the last little while has been Roseanne, which, of course was a reboot. To talk more about all of this, Bill Brio is with us, author of TV Feeds My Family. He is a TV critic. He's with us now. Bill, thanks for taking the time. We appreciate this. Hey, my pleasure, Scott. So, uh, do reboots work if they're stuck in the same era, or do these reboots have to move into modern times? How do you make that translation from the 80s or the 90s or the 2000s to now? Well, they have to show some progression because there was a reason they were canceled in the first place. You know, um, I think Will and Grace is an interesting example in that it um, <clears throat> was only off the air six years, and then when it came back, it just seemed like <clears throat> very much the same show. The characters were a bit older, but you know, it really didn't change its message or its style very much. So, I mean, there's one that didn't show a great 
leap in growth. It's just that the times maybe are better for it now because it's kind of a liberal show and they could make a lot of Trump jokes. Hmm. Uh, do, reboot, do reboots work if there's no relation to the original cast? I can think of shows like Hawaii Five-0, what have you. Does it have to be a part of the original cast in order to resonate with the viewer? Again, there's no hard and fast rule on that example you just gave. Hawaii Five-0, I mean, it's been on nine years. <laughs> you know, like it doesn't have any of the original yeah. cast members. So I think if it's exciting and, and it grabs a new generation... You know, Magnum P.I. went off the air in 1988. It's coming back this fall. So it, it hasn't been... How do it. you bring that show back? Especially when, back in the day, it was so dated. And again, when you look at the show, what attracted us to Magnum P.I. then is the same thing going to attract us to Magnum P.I. now? Well, I, I, a couple of answers. I think that show is being... Um, the executive producer of uh, the, the Hawaii Five-O reboot is also going to be the guy behind the new Magnum, and he happens to be from Montreal, Peter Lankos. Um, so he grew up watching those shows when he was a youngster in Montreal, and he just loved that Magnum dr- drove a Ferrari. He had a Detroit uh, Tigers cap on, and his buddy had a helicopter, and they were in this great place. So I think if you capture the spirit and the and the place. You can bring a show back without those original actors if it's still sexy enough to attract viewers. Uh, this new Magnum, the guy they have um, playing him, you know, doesn't won't have a mustache. You know, uh, even Higgins, who was the boss on the original show, in the new version, it's a woman because they felt there wasn't a strong woman on the original uh, hmm. Magnum PI. So they, you know, they're going to make changes, and we'll see if it works or not. There's no guarantee. There's a lot of these shows that don't work. But um, certainly, um, I guess if you've got a proven showrunner who's done it before, it helps when you're going to do it again. Um, it just seems that, you know, you look at Magnum P.I., it was kind of campy. It was, it was, uh, it, it really represented the feeling of the day, the, the era. Can you translate that to modern times? Does it have to, can you translate that feeling or does it have to grip a new feeling, grip a new uh, a new generation, per se. I think with Magnum, it, it, you don't have to recreate the feeling. I think that's a show for folks, they've worked all week, or it's going to be on Monday night. So it's going to start your week, if you're back at work, you come home, you put your feet up, you turn off your brain, and you just want to see stuff move fast for the next <laughs> You know, like, it, as long as it's, 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 it's like a sparkly, colorful thing that you're going to look at. If it's entertaining and you're into the stories, if it's well-produced, you're going to watch it. Bringing back Murphy Brown's another matter. And you've got, you know, Candace Bergen is 72 now. Yeah. Uh, the producer, the showrunner, Diane English, who's from Buffalo, New York, she's 70. And, you know, a lot of the other actors are getting up there. Why do you want to see them again? Well, you know, how do you make it relevant to today? So you take Candace Bergen's Murphy Brown. She's no longer a network news anchor. Now she's on like a, a, a CNN, a, a cable news channel. Right. Uh, what's she talking about? Well, Donald Trump, hashtag Me Too, uh, you know, the social network, uh, all those things that weren't really around when the first Murphy Brown were on the air. But who better to address fake news than this character, Murphy Brown? Hmm. So you've got a new backboard to play off of, and that's, I think, 
what what's really important for that show. Do producers look back and see what worked during a certain time, and if we're experiencing those sorts of times now, they go back to that template? Uh, you know, I mean, yeah. is this all cyclical? It, it, it is cyclical to a certain extent, but... You know, it just depends how long, how far back you're, you're, you're doing this. You know, Roseanne uh, was on in the 90s, late 80s and early 90s. So it was 30 years from its premiere and 20 years from when it went off the air. But uh, it just, that, there was a show where I felt very strongly the writing was terrific in the, the reboot. And you really were um, curious how these folks were getting along. Their blue-collar family so you kind of maybe had some uh, warmth, you know, t- to relate to these people and to see how the, have the kids grown up, have, do they have grandchildren, is Roseanne still crazy? You know, there was reasons to check them out, to revisit that family. And I think in that case, um, you've got to recapture those feelings more than the storylines or the times. What does it say about the television industry that they're doing this and doing it the way they have? I guess it's nothing new. They've been doing it for a while. As you said, the Y50 reboot's been on for nine years. Um, does it say anything about the health of the industry? It says a lot, yeah. I mean, you know, partially, it's, as you've just said, I mean, my favorite quote about TV, imitation is the sincerest form of television. Hmm. <laughs> so there's always that. But... I, I do think that the networks, the old broadcasters we grew up with, they are down to this kind of stuff where in order to cut through the clutter, they're bringing back familiar brands. They, they need stuff that you've heard of in order to get you watch again. And, you know, if you're already into Netflix and you've got every cable package, you're busy watching uh, stuff on HBO and your FX and You've moved on. You don't watch network TV at all, or if you do, it's just to watch sports, maybe a big reality show like The Amazing Race. Uh, So in order to keep the older viewers Mm. who have uh, memories maybe of a happier time when they were growing up, you give them the shows that were on when they were growing up. Uh, we remember shows like Happy Days, Laverne and Shirley. There's lots of shows that have been stuck in, an, in another time period. Are we going to see more of that now? They say when people are ha- when we're having difficult times in real life that we venture backwards into nostalgia. Is that coming? Yeah, I think so. I mean, uh, it's just there's it, a limit to how far back you can go because a lot of the folks on those shows you once loved aren't with us anymore. So. Uh, I mean, Ronnie Howard's still around from Happy Days, but he's busy. Um, <laughs> and you don't really want to see Potsy on a, on a TV show again. So the, you know what I mean? It's limited. I think CBC's going to try and bring back Street Legal. So we'll see. Really? If a, yeah. So we'll wow. see if there's a lot of nostalgia for that. I don't know. Uh, oh but there's my. a show coming on this fall called The Good Guys, or no, The Cool Kids. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's set in a retirement home. And, and what's smart about this one, uh, Martin Mull is one of the cast members, and he's oh. 80 now, Martin Mull, from Fernwood Tonight. <laughs> but he's still, you know, he look, he's Martin Mull. Uh, David Allen Greer is on it, and Vicki Lawrence, who was on the Carol Burnett show. Yeah. And they're all, the, you know, wow. they're the cool kids at this retirement home. The beauty of it is they're going to drop in, like, little cameo casts. So Klinger, uh, the actor, you know, who played Klinger on Mesh. Oh, man. Jamie Farr, oh, he's man. got a little cameo. But, <laughs> You're gonna you're gonna see Dick Van Dyke on there. Yeah. You know, fingers crossed. It's sort of like a modern day version of the Golden Girls. It's exactly that, and I think the networks have given up 
on trying to lure under 20s to television. They've moved on to five other devices, but they're going to give us plenty of our uh, Mormon fuzzy memories with these folks that we cherished when we were younger. They better hurry before everyone passes. Yep, exactly. uh, Bill Brio has been with us, TV critic, author of the blog TV Feeds My Family. Bill, as always, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Oh, anytime, Scott. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on 900 CHML.